welcome to Beer Talks. It's lovely to see all of you. <laughs> we have an awesome evening in front of us. As usual, we want to begin and end with gratitude, especially for the folks here at the Windy Saddle who host us and feed us and take care of us. Thank you, guys. Also for goldentoday.com for promoting lots of important stuff in our community, but also this event. If you haven't been to their website, please check it out. They have a couple of great listservs. So if you go to goldentoday.com, you can sign up, and they'll send you email every day and tell you what's happening, which is really useful if you love Golden, which I bet you do if you're in this room. We have an awesome speaker tonight, but we also, as you probably noticed, have a guest tap. So we've got four beers from Westfax Brewery. When I first visited Westfax Brewery, no one gave me this information about how to get there. But if you need to get there, it's, it's next to Casa Bonita. Like, I'm not sure about the connotation of that, but like, that's how to really find it. <laughs> right? That gets you there immediately. Anthony from Westfax is, go- is here tonight, pouring beer, and he's going to come up here and tell us a little bit about the selections and his brewery. Here's Anthony. Thank you. Um, first of all, just thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, fortunately, I don't make it to Golden too often. I live in Denver, and uh, I have a two-year-old, so he keeps me busy uh, not doing things I'd like to do. But, again, thanks, thanks for coming out. A um, little bit about Westfax. So we've been around just over two years, celebrated our two-year anniversary in March. Uh, we're located in Lakewood on West Colfax, right next to Casa Bonita. So you just got to find that pink tower and go to the fountain and turn left, and you'll be right in our tap room. So um, we brought four beers tonight. Um, I'll go through them briefly. So we have a cilantro lime ale. It's really light, super refreshing, um, notes of lime, and a touch of cilantro. So even if you aren't a cilantro fan, I, st- I still believe you might like this beer. Um, and we also brought a Saison called Cupcakes and Rainbows. Um, the reason we named it Cupcakes and Rainbows is because my son uh, really likes the movie Trolls. And there's a point in that movie where the kind of the grumpy troll says, you know, life isn't always cupcakes and rainbows. So, and I also like to say that to millennials. So, um, I'm on the border of being a millennial. So, um, then we also brought a Brute IPA. So, Brute IPA is a newer style. It's super effervescent. Um, not going to be bitter. Going to be light, easy to drink, great for a summer day, but it is 7.1%. Um, but it's not going to be a super bitter, piney, citrusy IPAs that you're used to. Um, and then we brought our New England style IPA. So that's becoming a, more of a trend or a thing within the uh, beer world. Um, ours is silky smooth, notes of orange, a little bit of mango and nectarine, um, but also very drinkable, not overly bitter. Um, so, yeah, I'll be here all night. Um, if you have any questions about the beers or the brewery, feel free to stop me. I'll be up there pouring the rest of the night, and I'll be walking around. So I also, there are some dollar-off coupons um, around, the, around the, um, the tap room here. So feel free to grab one and bring it into the brewery and uh, redeem it for a dollar-off pint. Yeah, so this is my favorite shirt, and also probably my favorite beer we make. Uh, it's a Scottish Ale. So if you read the back of my shirt, it says... Um, the beer William Wallace would have drank if he wasn't drinking the tears of his enemies. Uh, <laughs> what's that? What is your name? Anthony Marticello. Yeah, and I'm going to introduce Frank, right? Thanks.
Well, hello. Thank you all for coming for, well, another Golden Beer Talks. And uh, I hope that you enjoy this talk by Aaron McDaniel. Did, did I pronounce your name correctly? I am so sorry. I did. And um, from the Colorado State Archives. And I, I uh, heard a version of this presentation from Aaron a year ago in January at the Colorado Water Congress. And it was one of those presentations I remember uh, going to a, a conference once, and there was this presentation about mapping of Colorado in the early days. And I thought, well, that sounds like a snoozer. And this, this prof got up from uh, down in Denver and gave one of the most compelling talks that I'd seen or heard. And I have tried to recruit her to come here, but she does not respond. And Aaron responded, however, and she has a great presentation on drought in Colorado based around the Colorado State Archives. And in case you don't know, we have lots and lots of archives and a lot of water archives. And uh, Colorado State University has got a big water archives. Um, I'll call it a department, but it's part of it's a separate part of their um, library system, kind of its own area, kind of down in the basement with lots of stuff piled up, lots and lots of water records. The water is highly important in this state, and we have some of the most complex water laws anywhere in the Western United States. I think the only one that's worse is, or better is California with more complex laws. And um, uh, so, Aaron is a native Coloradan living here since the 1950s. And how many people can claim that they're native Coloradans? Are, are there many here? We have a handful. Okay. Pardon? The Utes must be here. Yeah. <laughs> the Utes, yeah. Very good. Good. Excellent point. Uh, she's been a historian and archivist since 1977 with her most important claim to fame as co-author of How the Waste Was Won, a history of the Fort Collins sewer system. And I, for one, will be reading that because I do like such things. She worked as a historian doing public history-type projects and since 1990 has worked at the Colorado State Archives as an archivist. After retiring in 2011, she returned to work on a part-time basis as a water archivist, cataloging the huge amount of records pertaining to water in the archives. The governor's collections proved especially interesting as they shed light on the development of, of Colorado through its water history. She hopes to spread the word about the Colorado State Archives and the 100,000 cubic feet of state records deposited there. So that's about 100,000 of those bankers' boxes, because one of those is about one cubic foot. And I know that you're all dying to know if she has found the records that George West had as quartermaster of the 2nd Colorado Volunteer Cavalry in the Civil War that were documented in 1960, and a little article was written about that, and they haven't shown up in the state archives. And they don't seem to be at the Colorado Historical Society. They're not at the state archives. So George West, founder of the Colorado Transcript, now the Golden Transcript, those records were still looking for him. But we'll find them sooner or later. And with that, Aaron. All right. You can all hear me? I have a little bit of a frog in my throat. But um, anyway, what this paper was actually about is the governor's responses to drought because we have... Um, so many records concerning water. We have agency records. We have judicial records. We have some of the earliest um, 
cases that concern water that basically were the foundation for um, Colorado and Western water law, and we have legislative records also. So, um, you know, like like Frank said, we have 100,000 cubic feet of records. So... um, Anyway, people from Colorado know or should know about drought in Colorado as it has impacted the state during its development, is impacting the state now, and will in the future. Many of our responses to drought have depended on our beliefs about the accessibility of our water by farmers, municipalities, economists, politicians, sports enthusiasts, and environmental groups. You know, people just turn on the tap, they expect the water to come out. But there has been a lot of um, arguing and fighting about water rights in Colorado and the western states. The uh, Anasazi Native Americans knew firsthand about drought as they were forced to abandon Mesa Verde in the late 1200s, at least partially due to the drought. Possibly other tribes forced them out too. But at any rate, they left. They had, um, I'll just send these around. They had irrigation back then. And... uh, so those are just pictures that pretty much go with the, with the thing. Um, in 1859, gold was discovered along the Cherry Creek and Platte River confluence, and that brought uh, the gold miners in by the droves. The first arguments over water were um, over the mining operations needing the water. They... Um, They needed water whether or not the claim was adjacent to the river. Uh, In the east, it was completely different. It was the riparian way of um, water rights. And if you lived by the river, then you had the water rights to that river. But, of course, in Colorado, that's not really possible. There aren't that many rivers, especially on the eastern slopes. So the miners needed water, and they set up miners' courts. And these were for um, other things besides water, but um, one of the first uh, laws, I guess you could say, were in the mining districts, and they would discuss um, who got claims to the water. And this is really the first time that they said, well, you know, we need the water, and it can't come... We're not adjacent to the river, so, you know, we need to set up some rules. So they would get water claims as well as mining claims. At the same time, uh, manifest destiny spurred many settlers to put down roots in the West. Manifest destiny was the idea that the United States, it was destiny that we went from coast to coast and that we'd settle, and, you know, it was ours, by golly. (laughs) Much to the Native Americans' consternation. At any rate, um, railroads came, and and various, the 
various people um, got people interested in settling out here. Uh, boards of immigration were set up, which encouraged settlement based upon propaganda by the railroads, towns, and, of course, the politicians. The Homestead Act of 1862 offered 160 acres of free land in the Great Plains. The Colorado Board of Immigration proclaimed, in the valley of the Platte and its tributaries and the valleys bordering on the stream flowing into the south fork of the Republican are many thousand acres of land already under cultivation, while hundreds of thousands of acres in these valleys second to no lands in the work for productiveness, now unoccupied, only await the application of skillful, skillful labor to yield gigantic crops, the profits of which would be almost incalculable. So they had these Board of Immigrations in most of the states, and they had other propaganda, etc., which actually caused uh, settlements to proliferate all over the West. And water access was at the heart of the issues at that point. The miners and farmers recognized the need to divert the water to their claims of land. And in an important opinion in 1872 by the Territorial Supreme Court Judge Moses Hallett, in a dry and thirsty land, it is necessary to divert the waters of streams from their natural channels in order to obtain the fruits of the soil, and this necessity is so universal and imperious that it claims the recognition of the law. This and other um, cases, Supreme Court cases, led to the Colorado Doctrine, which became the foundation for all of Western water law, even up to today. It acknowledges the right to divert water and sets up a system of water rights. Rather than diversions, though, dry land farming, which depended on the rain from the sky for their water source, at first did well in eastern Colorado due to adequate rainfall. However, in 1895, the eastern part of the state suffered a severe drought. Governor McIntyre at the time vetoed a bill to provide monetary aid to rain belt farmers, saying, the farmers knew what they were getting into by growing crops on the arid plains. There is no need of aid which has not already been provided largely by our own citizens. This was the first time that a significant European population was affected by drought, but it certainly would not be the last time. In 1902, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation starting, started funding dams and irrigation systems, which brought water to much of the land in Colorado and the West. This helped Colorado agriculture as the state was recovering from regional droughts from 1910-1911 and 1924-1925. It also spurred arguments in the 1920s between the western states concerning rivers that went through more than one state. Water storage was one of the main issues and what percentage of available water should be allotted to the various states. The first water compacts were drawn up and more populated states 
such as California, competed with states that hoped to develop their agriculture and increase their populations. The compacts address water rights in times of drought, but this would continue to be a bone of contention. And these water compacts are still here today. World War I and the early 1920s, farmers on the eastern plains planted huge crops of wheat. It was a wheat boom. Some farmers reaped a, a large amount of profit, and people from other states became absentee owners of, farmers, of farms for speculation. Overproduction and the soil practices of plowing up much of the region and leaving bare ground with no protection for the topsoil in the event of a drought brought crop prices down, with many out-of-state owners abandoning, abandoning their land by 1930. Extreme drought in the 1930s caused the Dust Bowl, as eastern Colorado cropland blew away as far as the eastern states. Many people sickened or died with dust pneumonia, and a large exodus occurred in the 1930s. Colorado Governors Adams, Johnson, and Ammons made sure to tap into the federal efforts to provide relief, including the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Governor Teller Ammons said in his inaugural address, the past few years, the tremendous value of our water has become more apparent because of the severe drought suffered by the semi-arid states. And as a consequence, every other state surrounding Colorado has been and is now taking advantage of every possibility to develop and conserve its water supply. I, re I recommend that you enact a law creating a Colorado Water Conservation Board giving it ample power to defend the state's title to the water which arises within the state. So then the Colorado Water Conservation Board was actually created in 1937. But as large projects such as the Colorado Big Thompson Water Storage Project were being constructed and a series of wet years occurred, the lessons in the 30s seemed to disappear. Wheat made a comeback in the southeastern plains, which showed a 240% increase in wheat production from 1940 to 1950. Suitcase farmers, as they were called, from other states again bought up land for investment, hoping to make a killing on the bonanza. Severe drought, however, occurred in the early 1950s, with the result of creating another dust bowl, Many said that the dust was worse in the 50s than in the 30s. Governor Dan Thornton appointed a commissioner of agriculture to deal especially with the drought and commenting on the reasons for the current conditions in eastern Colorado said, since the last time in the early 30s when we had so much blowing in eastern Colorado, we have plowed up until today almost twice the acreage plowed up as we did in the early 30s. Sooner or later, Colorado must brace up to the issue and place a land ordinance in effect, 
which will prohibit this continuous plowing of sod land, or the problem will become greater as years go along, and sometimes it might get so great that we will lose the soil entirely in eastern Colorado. Governor Thornton, echoing Governor McIntyre in the 1890s, said, It's time the individual takes some initiative for himself. They went into business with their eyes wide open down there. However, some people thought Governor Thornton should not publicize the drought, as this real estate broker wrote to Thornton. As a real estate broker of Colorado and a citizen of Colorado, can you imagine with what horror I read in Colorado newspapers the publicity you and said newspapers are giving out about the drought in this and other states? Two question marks and two exclamation marks. Will you be kind enough to explain why you choose to publicize this drought to the detriment of its citizens who are trying to make a living selling portions of it? <laughs> like swampland in Florida, I suppose. <laughs> Thornton instigated a special session of the General Assembly to deal with the soil erosion problem. He blamed the federal government for high-priced supports that encouraged people to flock to the stricken areas or to buy land for speculation. He encouraged soil conservation practices and wrote a wind erosion plan for the state. The legislature, however, emphasized more popular actions such as underground water development and wet years following the drought occurred and reclamation projects to support irrigation, drinking water, and water storage soon overtook concerns for drought. Beginning in the 1950s, the population along the Front Range rose significantly and the tourism industry became important. Much of the tourism growth centered on skiing, fishing, and other outdoor pursuits. Droughts occurred in the eastern plains and the southwest. There was a reluctance to again publicize the droughts as there would be a stifling effect on population growth, land prices, and business growth. However, Governor John Love testified testified before the U.S. Senate in 1971 and said, the traditional American ethic that bigger is better seems to have run its course. It is increasingly apparent the tremendous concentrations of people creates economic problems, social problems, psychological problems, and perhaps even biological problems. Also during the late 1960s and early 1970s, environmental issues began to temper the feeling that Colorado's population should expand. Urbanization along the Front Range boomed, with greater concerns about land use, crowding, traffic, congestion, and pollution. Sound familiar? (laughs) Richard Lamb took office in 1975 as the environmental governor at the beginning of a three-year drought cycle. He suggested that when talking about drought, the focus should be on the theme of aridity, Colorado is a semi-arid climate, and periodic drought should be expected and planned for in the course of events. We should move away from equating drought with disaster. Periodic drought is part of the Colorado environment, 
and we must learn to live with it. Given Colorado's booming population and increasing demands on scarce water, we are moving steadily closer to a situation of perpetual drought. The Colorado Drought Response Plan under Lamb in 1981 set up a systematic means to deal with emergency drought problems by setting up interagency coordination and assessment planning, which has continued up to the present day. From 1979 to 1990, the era of the Big Dam closed. Environmental concerns and the national economy were factors that stopped Two Forks Dam as well as other large reclamation projects being planned in Colorado. Beginning in 1999, the state once again began suffering from severe drought. 2002 was the driest year in the South Platte Basin and along the Colorado River in hundreds of years. Wildfires burned 619,000 acres across the state. Governor Owens activated the drought response plan and immediately brought all the task forces from numerous agencies to identify and recommend measures to combat the drought. Owens urged the General Assembly through a special session to address immediate actions to take place, conservation efforts to implement, and long-term supply needs. The State Water Supply Initiative Group was set up in 2003 to assess Colorado's water supply and is still meeting regularly. In 2005, nine grassroots basin roundtables were set up by region to discuss the interests of various factions concerning water. Basin roundtables also continue to meet regularly. In 2007, Governor William Ritter announced the Colorado Climate Action Plan, which raised alarms about global warming and its effect on Colorado in the future. In 2012 and 2013, we had severe drought, especially in the southwest. Up in the mountains, the pine beetle killed entire forests in part due to the warming winter. Wildfires were numerous. When John Hickenlooper took office in 2010, he put water at the forefront of his administration. Scarce water supply, compact agreements with other states, arguments between the western and eastern slopes about how to manage the water, and drought in Colorado were important issues. Hickenlooper, in 2013, issued an executive order directing the Water Conservation Board to commence a statewide water plan, which would incorporate the drought plan. The water plan from 2015 rests upon collaborative decisions to meet agricultural, municipal, industrial, recreational, and environmental needs to 2050. And whether or not the water plan works depends on money to fund it, continued collaboration between stakeholders, of course politics, and the citizens of Colorado who must decide what they envision the future of Colorado to be. We're going to come back for Q&A, but before we do that, if you cast your eye over to this convivial crowd, talk about gratitude, right? 
So these folks are enjoying some meals and some beers and golden beer talks as part of their gift through our very special auction. This is their very special table. You too can do this with your friends. Some of you already have as guests of the Dales in the past. So we'll have an auction in the fall when we have our fifth anniversary and you can get yourself a very special table and support this organization and enjoy the auctioneering skills of Councillor Dale. Yeah. Am I still up? All right. Woo. Little, little warm there. All right, we're gonna bring Aaron back up for some questions about droughts and governors and archives and wildfires maybe. We'll see what the questions are. If you don't mind repeating the questions so that it shows up on the recording. Cool, thank you. First of all, this is a publication put out by the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. And even though it says Colorado climate change, it's uh, fairly balanced. I mean, there are issues on both sides. And this just gives a lot of data about climate and how it's changed over the years. And it's, yeah, sure. And it's very interesting. Yeah, there is. Because uh, the Colorado, Colorado Water Conservation Board and the Colorado Division of Colorado Water Resources. He's on our city council. Oh. <laughs> so this tells you a lot, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's an issue. Yes, sir. Could you uh, talk about the, the uh, Colorado River Compact? And you, mm -hmm. you alluded to it, uh, but if you mm -hmm. could just you know, talk a minute or so about what happened Okay. Okay. Well, the Colorado River Compact, um, there was a guy named uh, Carpenter, Delph Carpenter, and, and he got the idea. He was from Colorado. He got the idea that people were going to have to start working together and to, to solve all these issues. So he started to get the states together for the first the Colorado River Compact and then other compacts that came along. And um, one of the issues was like California thought they deserved more because they had a greater population, whereas Colorado and Arizona and the other Colorado River states said, yeah, but in the future we want to... Um, gain more population and we want to do more agriculture so so you can't have it all so um, they they fought about it for quite a while and then they came up with the Colorado River Compact which was actually a treaty between the states they had to go through Congress first to um, get Congress to okay a compact and and after that, then they got together in various places, and it took about two years before the compact was was made. Then later on in, um, well, I can't remember when exactly, but might have been the 50s, the upper Colorado River states got all in a bunch and were mad at the, the southern Colorado River group. And so they had a bunch of 
meetings about that, and they come, came up with the Upper Colorado River Compact. And there have been other compacts where Colorado's part of nine water compacts with, uh, you know, depending on the river. You've got the Rio Grande Compact and the Arkansas River Compact and um, the Platte and the Republic. So you've got um, all sorts of people involved with the compacts and everybody around us, Nebraska and Kansas and Wyoming and Utah and Nevada and just about everybody in the West. Uh huh. How was there was a big deal earlier this year about Arizona taking a bunch of water and doing what they wanted with it? How did that fit under the compact? Um, there was a problem earlier. There was an issue with uh, Arizona. Um, taking water, and he was wondering what came of that. And also how it fit under the compact. And also how it fit under the compact. Well, each each state has a certain percentage of water that they can use. Um, Colorado has like gets 30 percent of the Colorado River, and the other states get their percentages. Um, Arizona has its share, and, you know, I can't remember exactly what that was about, but at any rate, um, the other states got upset, and so, you know, there's all sorts of suits between the states along the years, and it never seems to get a whole lot better. And I think in the future, the compacts they're going to have to be renegotiated some way because there's just there's just not enough water to go around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about water quantity over time and how the mm-hmm. droughts have changed that and the compacts and different things the governors have done. Mm-hmm. And the governors, back, back in the 18, late 1800s, I'll say, because I don't know exactly, <laughs> Uh, downstream ranchers and farmers were having serious problems with water quality as well. Mm-hmm. And did the governors ever address that in the compacts or any in any mm-hmm. official way? I mean, we just saw it with the Animas River, and there's lawsuits mm-hmm. from New Mexico and mm-hmm. a bunch of other places about water quality in 2015. Uh-huh. So, you know. Uh, not that I know of. I think for the most part, Colorado was spread out, the population was spread out, and they didn't have to worry too much about water quality. Um, And then um, when the environmental era came along, the 1960s and 1970s and and earlier, they started to get much more interested in the water quality. So that's what's happened with water quality in the 18... Hundreds. Uh huh. 
Well, it has a major impact, and sometimes um, the what impact does what impact does the agriculture uh, basically selling their water rights to others have on the state agriculture? It has a huge effect on agriculture because the, they own the rights. They own the water rights, and so every year they use it or lose it. And so um, that doesn't fly too well with especially the municipalities who need that water to take care of the population, especially along the front range. So what they're doing is they're figuring out a way to... Um, have the farmers get the water when they need it, and then they lease the water for the rest of the year. So that's kind of a win-win for both of them. Mm-hmm. Well, what have we learned from from history to prepare us for tomorrow, basically, is the question. Um, well, if you noticed, they kept doing the same things over and over again, and it didn't work out that, that time either. Um, I think when it really got to the point, uh, the, the compacts, it was shown that they could, states could collaborate and actually come up with Agreements that worked for everybody. So, but at the local level, um, you know, the politicians sort of said, well, I need to get reelected, so I don't want to talk about drought. Besides, it's raining right now. And so, you know, and then they started with the underground water over the aquifer. And so drought just sort of went by the wayside. Until it happened again, of course. And every time people would come out and say, well, you know, we, we really need to do something about the land. We can't, we can't have this land blowing away like this. It's ridiculous. And we can't have uh, suitcase farmers buying up the land for speculation. I mean, something's got to be done. So over the years, they came up with... Um, cover crops and not tilling up the soil so that it would blow away and various other things. Plus technology has has gotten a lot better as far as agriculture is concerned. So um, and then in the in the sixties I was kind of surprised to see Governor Love say what he said and um and then when Governor Lamb came in, he was uh, kind of in a pickle. He was the environmental governor. But at the same time, uh, like Carter and Reagan wanted to get rid of federal funding for these big dam projects. And so we had a bunch of dams that, that we were trying to build that didn't actually get built, except for like the... Uh, the um, Dolores and McPhee Reservoir, if you know where McPhee Reservoir, it's in the southwest corner 
and the Native Americans had a stock in that. And so since that was a big issue, uh, they said, okay, we'll let that one go. And so that was built, but others were not. But at any rate, um, he did come up with, with a plan, you know, to get, to get some agencies together and, and other people together, do some research on water. Um, and he actually started the, the thing, the deal where um, people would use the plan in the future. And there, there have been some modifications to it, of course, but for the most part, that's the way it goes today, you know, that you have the nine um, basin round tables, and they meet often and discuss issues that each region has, and they include, they include the environmentalists, and they include the um, agencies, they include recreation people, Farms, farmers, uh, municipalities, and anybody who has a stake in the water in that region. And then they got together, and they came up with sort of a, a general plan. And the uh, statewide water initiative, uh, that's a group also that, that meets, and they have um, plans about whether we're going to have water available in the future. Uh, so everybody got together over a few years and came up with the water plan. Now, you know, there's lots of people who say it's not going to work because there's just too many people arguing about, about the water. And there's too many people um, coming into the state and... So population is going to be a, a major issue. So in what some ways we learn from the past, and in some ways we just go over the same thing over and over again without too much success. So we'll see. Hopefully the water plan will develop and expand. Yes? So if you have an idea, if you have an opinion, what would you say needs to change in uh, water law to make the state water plan? I mean, what would be like the single thing, most critical thing, if you have an opinion? Well, I think the agriculture, um, giving the municipalities uh, leasing opportunities, I think that's a big one. And um, um, I think probably the compact are going to have to be um, renegotiated. As far as laws, there are some, some people coming up with, with laws that say, okay, the water is, is ours. It's the state's and the people's water. Therefore, there shouldn't be anything such as water rights. But as uh, one, one uh, Supreme Court judge who um, is especially good at water cases said, it would be like a nuclear bomb on the w Western water law. So, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be that easy to um, get rid of all those water rights in the system that's been in place since 
you know, the 1880s. Mm -hmm. Who was that? Pardon me? Justice Hobbs. Justice Hobbs. Who was that justice? Justice Hobbs. And Frank asked what, what um, law or laws might be made that would uh, make the water plan work better. Next month, we're going to have Mike Bell here. He's in the room right now talking about air quality in our national parks and other use issues where all of us like to play. So I hope you'll come back next month, second Tuesday of every month we're here. And um, thank you for supporting Golden Beer Talks. Have a good night.